some uh, familiar scriptures from Hebrews chapter 11, beginning with verse 13. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, and they admitted they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, and he has prepared a city for them. Father in heaven, I do pray that you'll guide us and instruct us and teach us that we can hear your word and be obedient to it this morning. Speak to our hearts now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I live on the western frontier. There are, there are a lot of people in our country that think the frontier was settled about 120 years ago, but they don't live in Winchester, Idaho. I live on the western frontier, and the western frontier is still different. It is still vast. It is still unpopulated. It's very pragmatic. It's very independent. It is sometimes dangerous, and it's always wild. Not just the fact that I have deer in my yard and raccoons under the porch, and I hear the wolves howl every morning when I go out running, but uh, Winchester can get kind of wild on Saturday nights, too an old logging town in north central Idaho. I live at 4,000 feet in the pine trees next to a lake on the middle of the Nez Perce Indian Reservation. The town of Winchester has 300 people. Uh, we travel an hour to find the nearest McDonald's, two and a half hours to find a freeway. We have one paved street uh, as of a few years ago, and I'm happy to report since the last time I'm here, we have no more outhouses in town. Everyone's hooked up to the sewer system. I live on the western frontier. I think there's a similarity between the western frontier and the spiritual frontier, and that's the comparison that I want to make this morning. I write a lot of western novels. I write a lot and a lot and a lot of historical fiction. And as I do my research and as I study, I am I'm aware of the similarities that we all we are all strangers and pilgrims. We are all passing through. We all started and pushed off from a destination and we are headed somewhere. This world isn't our home. And we have to remember that. So what I want to talk about in the next 4 days is life on the spiritual frontier and this morning in particular I want to talk about focus. Frontier focus. One of the things that, that is true when I think about all of those pioneers pushing out from St. Joseph or Independence, or Missouri, or wherever they left, one of the things I know is when they first pushed away and they crossed the river and they started across the Kansas Plains, they knew where they wanted to end up. That didn't mean they ended up there, but they knew. They were going to Oregon. They were going to California. They knew where they were going. They had focus. And it was that focus that kept them going. You and I need to have focus. If I were to ask you about your spiritual life, where are you headed? <laughs> you know, we would answer, well, I'm going to heaven. The Christian life is not a ride. It's a journey. There's a difference. Sometimes we accept the Lord and we think it's a ride. I get in a limo and I'll just ride along until I'm through with life and then I'm in heaven. 
Well, it wasn't that way going west, and it's not that way in our spiritual life. You accept the Lord, you cross that river, and the prairie's ahead of you, and you got to do something. You can't stand there, or you'll get nowhere. We need focus. What is our focus? I, I, I want to give you uh, three points this morning about that focus. First thing is you have to know where you're headed. You have to know where you're headed. The verse is very familiar in Matthew 6, 33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. That's focus. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added. You know, most of us spend most of our life focusing on the added things. Jesus didn't say that. He said, seek ye first the kingdom. And then there are going to be some things added. And God adds wonderful things to our life, doesn't He? He adds to you and me some material possessions. They're wonderful things. I enjoy them. Sometimes when you go to camp and you're in a that kind of atmosphere, especially if you're challenging kids and stuff, you use the old illustration, well, what happens if your house burns down and uh, all your family's safe, but you can only grab one or two things as you leave? What would you grab? And uh, that's supposed to test your connection to material things. And the spiritual answer when you're at, at kids' camp is to say, I would take my Bible. Okay? Now, we live in a country where there are lots of Bibles, of course, and you can buy new Bibles. And, you know, I have to admit to you, I would not take my Bible because I need a new one. This one has been written on. It's been dragged in the back bumper of my pickup truck. It was given to me in, in uh, 1986 by Jim Gwynn, who was at Moody Bible Institute. And Tim, I need a new Bible. Okay. See, I wouldn't grab, I wouldn't grab. You know what I would grab? I would grab a Winchester 1873 first model carbine that I have and a Sharps 1859 carbine that I have because I love those two old guns and I'd get them out of the house as quick as I could. But those are added things. Any material things we have are added things. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added. See how that, that focus is? Now, God has added to me vocations. I get to do a lot of things. As you, as you heard, I'm the pastor of the only church in town, Winchester Community Church, and that's what I do on Sunday mornings. And yes, this is the way I dress on Sunday mornings. Except I did forget my Apache scarf I usually wear. But uh, I'm pastor of the one church in town. We have probably 50, 60, 70 people there on Sunday morning. And uh, that's something God has added to me. Yes, I have been elected mayor and been on the council for years uh, of uh, the city of uh, Winchester. And I'm happy to report. Well, I gave you a little clue, but I'm happy to report that through uh, grants and federal help and, and a lot of begging and pleading, we now have a $1.3 million uh, waste treatment system uh, installed at our little town of Winchester. So... I'm happy about my great accomplishments there. But those are added vocations. I write books. I write uh, five or six books a year. I think I have three, four, five, six books coming out this year. And uh, I didn't always want to be writing. But it's something God has added. It's an added thing. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things will be added. Sometimes God adds uh, a little bit of fame. I my son, my young son, Aaron, always calls me. He said, Dad, you're a minor celebrity. And he said, you will always be a minor celebrity. I asked him what the definition was, and he said, a minor celebrity is one that has to be introduced. When Tim introduced Larnell last night, he said, Larnell doesn't need any introduction. He doesn't. 
Larnell can get up there and we all say, oh, wow, that's Larnell there. But Steve Light, oh, we got to introduce him. <laughs> they won't know who he is. But sometimes you get to that, that thing. In a few weeks, I'll be in Orlando at uh, Christian Booksellers Association. And a couple years ago when I went down to Christian Booksellers Association, I was standing in the aisle. I already signed a bunch of books, and I was all through with that. So I was visiting with my editor. And there were four or five teenage girls that came up, about 15, 16-year-old. And they'd read my name tag, and they went like this. Ah, it's you, it's you, it's you. And for a minute, I thought I was Leonardo DiCaprio, you know. They said, we read all your books. I said, I know who you're looking for. You're not looking for me. You're looking for Brady Stoner, aren't you? That's one of my characters in my book. Oh, yeah, we want to find a guy like Brady. So the Lord sometimes adds just a little bit of fame. Last year, I had the privilege of receiving a Christie Award, uh, highest award for Christian fiction. And, and uh, the Lord adds a little bit of fame. But it's an added thing. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. In his righteousness. Sometimes God adds friends to our life, wonderful friends. One of the things I've enjoyed about writing and getting to travel and speak are all the people I get to meet. I got some good friends here, Bill and Marlene Crowder right over here that I got to meet maybe six, eight years ago, Bill, something. And uh, we've just been friends ever since, even though he roots for the wrong baseball team. We get along, okay. And travel does that. Speaking does that. God has added wonderful friends uh, from all over the country. I get emails and letters. I got a letter from a 13-year-old girl in Christianburg, Virginia. One time, Angela said to me, please, please, Mr. Bly, don't let Stuart Brandon marry Harriet Reed. She's no good for him. I love it. I love the friends I make. But friends are added things. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. God adds ministry to my life. Ministry through the books. I got a letter from uh, a lady named Sarah. Sarah was a, and her husband were part of the maintenance staff at a church in Southern California where I served and for, for 10 years. And uh, they retired and moved to Oregon. And, and we moved off to Idaho, but we still keep in correspondence. Sarah wrote me a letter. She said, I got to tell you, Steve, about what happened to my grandson, Wayne. And then she gave me a little background. Their daughter had lived three or four hours away from where we were in Southern California, but for vacations, come down and go to church. And so I knew the daughter and, and knew the children a little bit. The daughter had an abusive situation with her husband and uh, who was into alcohol and drugs. And finally, she, she left him and, and he was in jail and prison a lot, in and out. And when her son, Wayne, had got to be a teenager, he went to live with his dad. He got caught up in the same lifestyle. And so when Sarah wrote to me, Wayne was in prison. He's still in prison at the state prison in Carson City, Nevada. Sarah wrote to me, and she said, I got a letter from my grandson, Wayne, and you know I've been praying for him for a long time. The, the letter said, Grandma, says, I wanted to write to you first off because of what happened to me. He said, one time I came back uh, last week or a few weeks ago, I came back from exercise yard, and there was a book laying on my bunk. I don't know where it came from, but it's a Western novel. It was laying on my bed, so I read it. I got a lot of time, so I read it. And it was about a guy who was um, out of jail and, and um, separated uh, from the Lord and found uh, that he needed God in his life. And it so inspired me that I dedicated my heart to the Lord. And I'm involved in a prison Bible study. And I knew you'd want to know because you've been praying for me. But he said, Grandma, I had to ask because the book was written by somebody named Stephen Bly. And was this the pastor, Steve, that you used to have down in Southern California? He went on to say, 
the funny thing is, Grandma, I don't know how the book got on my bed because my the guys in my cell didn't put it there, and the guys around me, I asked them where the book came from, so I give it back, and they didn't know where it came from. And uh, the only thing I can figure is that somebody on the way out to the wreck yard had to had the book in his hand and just tossed it in a bunk so he wouldn't have it or something. Well, I know how that book got there. Grandma's prayers got it there. Now, see, the Lord adds ministry. But it's an added thing. Seek ye first the kingdom of God in His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. A couple of years ago, uh, two years ago, I got a call from a guy in North Carolina, in South Carolina, and he said, uh, Mr. Bly said, I uh, just want to let you know that we're coming out to see you on our vacation. And uh, I've never been a vacation destination before. And um, I have to admit, coming to see me is a little bit different because we do live in the mountains and the pine trees next to a lake in north central Idaho. And I do have a false front western town at my place that I built called Broken Arrow Crossing. Looks like a movie set. It's all the front of the buildings. We have barbecues and stuff out there. So it's not the ordinary yard kind of thing. Janet calls it our theme yard. There are theme parks. We have a theme yard. But uh, so they said, uh, we're coming out. Uh, my daughter has read all your books. Daughter Jill, 12 years old, has read all your books. She, and I asked her what she wanted to do for vacation. She could go any place in the country. She said, I want to go meet Stephen Bly. So they came out and uh, they came to Coeur d'Alene. There are a lot of beautiful things to do in northern Idaho. And, you know, they had a good vacation, I'm sure. They came down to see me. They came to church. And after church, uh, they came over to the house, and I could show Jill where I wrote and, and the books and all of that. That evening, we were having a barbecue at Broken Arrow Crossing, and so they stayed, and we had some cowboy games, roping and some other stuff. Jill got to be a part of the whole festivities. While we were there in the evening, her father came to me, and he said, you know, I need to explain, because I know this sounds strange that we would come all this way uh, as a vacation to meet you, but i got to tell you about Jill. Jill uh, was born with heart defects. And she's had five heart surgeries, and she still has an aneurysm so close to her heart they can't do surgery. And she's going to live with that. And they tell us that she could go just at any time. She could die in two days or 20 years. Just have absolutely no idea at all. And so we feel like we just have to do things with her that she wants to do because we just don't know how long we get to keep her. And uh, at the end of the evening, Jill came and hugged me. She said, Mr. Bly, this is the best day of my entire life. I want to tell you, I've never been a 12-year-old girl's best day before. God adds ministry to our life. But ministry is an added thing. You don't seek that. You seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. The kingdom of God is the rule and the reign of Jesus in the hearts and lives of believers. And you seek that first. God's had family and loved ones to our life. Janet and I celebrated last two weeks ago, uh, Saturday, our 40th wedding anniversary. We have uh, three sons, uh, Russ. You know, I have to choke when I say this, but Russ is about 39 years old. <clears throat> and uh, and uh, Michael is 35, and Aaron is 23 graduated from college last year. We have two grandchildren and a teenage grandson and named Zachary and Miranda, his sister. But all of them, as wonderful as they are to me, are added things. It doesn't say seek family. It says seek ye first the kingdom of God 
and God will add things to our life. That's focus. So when you push out across that river and you accept Jesus Christ as Lord, you've got to have focus. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Now here's the second point. The second point is you're going to have to cast aside a few things to reach your goal. It comes in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. You know this one too. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run the race with perseverance, the race marked out before us. You and I have to toss off everything that hinders. One of my most favorite uh, possessions that is totally meaningless to anybody else is a piano key. I should have brought it. An old, weather-beaten piano key. Now, don't ask me what key it is. I don't know. It's one of those that has a little bit cut out where the black key goes up above. I was doing research for a series of books. I wrote a series of books about uh, Pony Express and, uh, and Life on the Oregon Trail, and so I was out in northern Nevada, one of my favorite places, actually. It's so barren and deserted. I can go to places in uh, northern Nevada where I can stand and look 50 miles in any direction and there isn't a person, there isn't another rig, they're in the house, they're in the telephone pole. I love it. So I was out at a place called the Humboldt Sink. Now in northern uh, Nevada, it's called the Great Basin, and the Great Basin does not drain to any of the oceans. And so the rivers that flow out into the Great Basin sink and disappear and they're gone. And the Humboldt Sink is where the Humboldt River coming down out of Idaho, swings around out of Idaho and comes down, and it just goes out and dumps out into northern uh, Nevada. The Carson Sink comes out of the mountains, the Sierra, back side of the Sierra Nevadas, no, the east side of the Sierra Nevadas, and it just dumps out there. Now, in the, in the early spring when the snow run off, it's like an alkali swamp, those sinks. But in the summertime when the water dries up, it is like a, a desert through the finest, bitterest dirt you've ever seen in your life. And for those early pioneers who crossed and went to California on the California Trail, crossing the Humboldt Sink and crossing the Carson Sink was the worst part of the journey. They didn't always know it when they left Missouri, but when they got there, they knew that there wasn't anything worse. There was no water. There was this fine dust that fogged up and got, in, got into places it shouldn't get in and and you could hardly breathe, and the animals could hardly breathe, and the animals were worn out by the time you get that far west anyway. And so you've heard all those stories about uh, how they lighten their wagons. I was out hiking in the Humboldt Sink one time, and I found a piano key. Now, I'm not sure that it's been there since pioneer days. It could have been somebody in 1966 threw their garbage out. I don't know, but I like to think of it that way. Because certainly there are lots of accounts of the things that were left alongside of the road in order to lighten the load. So big hutches that were loaded on in Indiana and traipsed across the, the Mississippi River were dumped out on the plains or out on the sink someplace, and that was it. Pianos were left behind and pump organs and anything heavy to try to make it. They had focus. They were going to get to their goal no matter what. And other things need to be left behind. Sin is that way. It keeps us from getting to that goal, seeking you first, the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And, and so we need to cast it aside, the, 
the writer of Hebrews used the analogy like it's clothing that need to be cast aside. He used the analogy of running a race with, uh, with, with the wrong gear on, and you've got to get rid of that so you can run faster, so you can make it, so you can reach the goal. But it's not only sin that weighs us down. There are, there are other things that we've added to our life that we don't think of as sinful at all. They just keep us from reaching the goal. There are people in our world today that are addicted to 24-hour news channels. It steals hours away from every day. Folks, there isn't that much news. Not in the whole world is there that much news. That's why they keep recycling the same stuff over and over. There are people today who are addicted to email and the internet. Hours are spent that should be spent someplace else. So when I say cast aside and leave the stuff behind, I want to tell you a beautiful oak hutch full of china dishes is nice. But if you've got to leave it on the prairie, leave it so you can get to the goal. There's nothing sinful about it. It just weighs you down. You've got to have focus. We've got to reach that goal. Here's the third point. Throw away everything was the second point. And third, we, we must never lose sight of that goal. We must never lose sight of that goal. In Philippians uh, chapter 3, verse 14, Paul says, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I press on towards the goal. Last week I was in uh, Cody, Wyoming, and I drove home through, uh, I like a Beartooth Pass, and if you've been out west, I hope you go through Beartooth Pass sometime. If you're squeamish, I hope somebody else is driving when you go through Beartooth Pass. There's a t-shirt down at Red Lodge that says, Real Men Don't Need Guardrails. Beartooth Pass. But I, I left Cody and I went over Beartooth Pass. It's one of my favorite, probably ten favorite roads in America. You know, my 10 favorite roads in America are all out west, huh? But uh, you come over Dead Man uh, Pass, and you look up at Beartooth Pass, and you can see 100 miles, and the Rocky Mountains are there, and the Rocky Mountains are just totally awesome. You can't believe how big things can be. There's nobody around. You can see for hundreds of miles. And I try to envision, what would it be like to be a pioneer in your covered wagon? And you, you see all I mean, it's beautiful, but you're going, ah, how will we ever get over that? But they got over it. They pressed on. When I crossed Donner Pass, you can cross Donner Pass now with that uh, eight-lane freeway, uh, Highway 80 going over from Reno to Sacramento, and you can just zip right across there. But when they first came across there, oh, it was a horrible thing. I can't imagine what it's like to look at that rocks and look at those mountains. And what, you did, what they did was they took the animals loose, and they uh, walked the animals back and forth, back and forth, and somehow got them to the top. Then they came back down, and they carried on their backs everything out of their wagon, here up to the top. Then they came back down, and they disassembled the wagon, took the wheels off, the axles off, the tongue off, took the sides off, and roped it up piece by piece so they could put it back together again and go on. And you and I think the Christian walk is a ride. Just get in a limo and wait for heaven. It's a journey, and there are mountains to cross, and there are dry, dusty sinks that we have to go across. 
And there are going to be lots of hard times. But we have to never lose sight of the goal. I want to come back to that Hebrews passage. Because the goal is right there. In the clearest language, I think, anywhere in the Bible. It's just a little sentence, and you might overlook it. But my heart jumps every time I read it. At the end of that passage, I read verses uh, 13 through 16 of Hebrews chapter 11. At the end of the passage, verse 16, are these words. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. That's it. Isn't that our goal? We don't want to just make it to heaven. We want to make it and have God not ashamed. How are we going to get there? We've got to know where we're going. We've got to cast aside the things that hinder us. We've got to never lose sight of that goal. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we need to be refreshed. We need to see that goal again. We pushed out when we first accepted the Lord. We knew where we were headed then. But from time to time, Lord, we get uh, complacent. We get routine. Maybe we're still plodding along, but we aren't thinking about much except the next step, and we need to be thinking about that wonderful goal. Lord, we want to seek first your kingdom, your rule, your reign in our hearts every day of the week, every day of our life. We want to live our life in such a way that you are not ashamed to be called our God. We love you, Lord, and we thank you that Jesus died for sinners just like us. And by his wonderful grace, we're saved. We commit this teaching to you and pray you'll continue to instruct us in it. Praying in Jesus' name, amen.